You might like to turn to Matthew chapter 26. We've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel and while this is Palm Sunday, we actually looked at the issues of Palm Sunday and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem some weeks ago. And this morning what I want to do is to look at, um, from Matthew chapter 26 and 27, uh, some passages, and then this evening to do the same. Our theme for today I wanted to take as Judas and Peter at the time of the crucifixion. Then, God willing, next Sunday evening, or next Friday evening, uh, we'll look at the death of Christ, and next Sunday we'll concentrate on the resurrection. Dennis Dolenzel was born in Belfast in 1950. He lived in the Short Strand, an area which was home to quite a number of the active members of the Provisional IRA in years to come. He was imprisoned in Long Kesh in the 1970s and was a friend of hunger striker Bobby Sands. Pictures of the two of them have been common in the papers in the last few days. He managed Sinn Féin's operations in the United States for a while. He took a leading role in local elections and he came to prominence in October 2002 when he was arrested following the raid on the Sinn Féin offices in Stormont by police. Sinn Féin members confidently anticipated that charges against him would be dropped, but I suspect that most of them didn't anticipate the reason why. In December 2005, the Public Prosecution Service dropped the spy ring charges on the grounds that it would not be in the public interest. And later that month, Sinn Féin announced that Donaldson had for 20 years been working as a British spy, recruited, as he put it, during a vulnerable time in his life. Donaldson's treatment by Sinn Féin and the IRA at the time seemed to represent a new era of peaceful progress. He was advised to get a solicitor and he read out a statement of admission on RTE. Donaldson disappeared from the limelight until last week, having been tracked down in March by Hugh Jordan, a journalist from the Sunday World. It was clear that his hideout was going to be easily identified by the media. Undoubtedly, both the security forces and the IRA were perfectly well aware of his location, as the house belonged to his son-in-law, Kieran Kearney, who had been arrested along with Donaldson following the Stormont Raid in 2002. It appears that in the last week, Dennis Donaldson attempted to close the door on his attacker and had his hand blown off by a shotgun. He was then shot in the chest and head. What kind of life did Dennis Donaldson lead and live for 20 years? Life on a knife edge, that's for sure. A life in which every meaningful, happy family event, like the birth of his grandchildren, must have been tempered by the knowledge of the threat that he was to their survival. A life in which he lived the pretense of loyalty while all the time knowing that he was betraying his own people. The word betray has been used a lot in the media in the last few weeks in speaking of Dennis Donaldson. As far as many within the Republican movement were concerned, Dennis Donaldson was a Judas. Judas hit the headlines this week 
Given that my plan was to preach in Judas and Peter today, I have to confess I was a bit shocked. If Dennis Donaldson was seen this week to have lived and died the life of a betrayer, the Gospel of Judas, published by the National Geographic Society and others, portrays the Judas of history as a hero. Just as the court case over the Da Vinci Code comes to a timely climax before Easter, further promoting the sales of Dan Brown's book and the film, as well as the sales of the book The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, at the same time it just so happens comes the publication of the Gospel of Judas. The Daily Telegraph, among many other papers, carried uh, important feature articles, full-page feature articles on the Gospel of Judas uh, in the last uh, week or so. And language like uh, crisis for the Christian church has been very common. Uh, mysterious leaks of the 26-page gospel have already revealed the document's killer quote in it. Jesus tells Judas Iscariot, you will become the apostle cursed by all the others. Judas, you will sacrifice this body of man which clothes me. And the media, the papers, many of them have been full of discussion about how the gospel of Judas is going to rock to its foundations, Christian belief and Orthodox Christianity. The gospel of Judas belongs to a selection of writings, quite a big selection of writings, uh, which were published in the years following the life of Jesus. The Gospel of Judas was, has been well known, although copies of it haven't been around, because one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, spoke a lot about it and dealt with it as part of a heresy that was affecting the life of the church, part of Gnosticism, a whole structure of belief, a whole way of thinking about the world and about God, which was affecting the way in which people thought about Jesus Christ. There's an article on the National Geographic website. If you go there, you'll find all kinds of interesting material on the Gospel of Judas. Um, an article by a lady called Elizabeth Snodgrass. And she makes reference to the Gnostics who were around, around the time uh, following the life of Jesus. And what she says is, after the time of Christ, a number of Gnostics adopted Jesus as their saviour, as the man who told humankind the truth about God, and thus considered themselves Christian. However, they understood his role and his teachings in a very different way than Orthodox Christians. Gnostics had a whole huge cosmology thing going on. They believed in lots of different gods, lots of different levels of spirituality and of heavens. And it's a vast minefield of, of ideas. Many Gnostics believed that Jesus was sent to earth to teach humankind humankind about a kind, loving and accepting God who was very different from the tough, vengeful creator of the Old Testament. Because they basically believed that the creator referred to in the Old Testament was a pretty wicked and evil deity and power. And that Jesus actually came to woo and to wing people away from any knowledge or, or belief in that God to a deeper enlightenment and a deeper understanding of who they were supposed to be. Jesus' role on earth, according to the Gnostic Christians, was to tell humankind that they were descended from the divine. By knowing this and looking inward to discover the divine spark, a Gnostic can be reunited with the divine and live in the fullness of God. One of the aspects of the Gospel of Judas, this is part of the uh, papyrus, is a reference to the Last Supper. And the, as you would expect that in the Gospel of Judas, where Judas becomes the hero, the one who does what Jesus wants him to do, uh, the whole approach to the Last Supper is rather different. 
There's a, a dramatically different retelling of the final meal Jesus shared with his disciples, which goes something like this. When he, and as Jesus, approached his disciples, who had gathered together and were seated, and offering a prayer of thanksgiving over the bread, he laughed. The disciples said to him, Master, why are you laughing at our prayer of thanksgiving? We have done what is right. He answered and said to them, I'm not laughing at you. You are not doing this because of your own will, but because it is through this that your God will be praised. So the Gospel of Judas has a very different take on all aspects of the life of Jesus and what was going on. And this whole idea of Jesus undermining any belief in the God of the Old Testament and trying to wean people away from that. Jesus laughs, the scholars say, because the disciples don't understand that the God of the Old Testament, to whom they direct their prayers, is not the true God. In this gospel, the gospel of Judas, only Judas, the disciple reviled by Orthodox Christians, understands God's and Jesus' true nature. It seems to me that it really had to wait until our postmodern era for it to be possible that the gospel of Judas could be taken so seriously. It's certainly not new. You'll find many references to it in the writings of the church fathers throughout the history of the church. But to hear academics and media types uncritically evaluating the gospel of Judas as the card that trumps the biblical gospels is actually very depressing. But in an era where there is no actual truth, in a remarkably uncritical way, even a Gnostic gospel suddenly carries an authority with a power on anything else that has gone before. The independent newspaper, and I do do other things than read newspapers during the week, I sometimes watch TV, uh, the Independent newspaper carried an excellent article uh, on the 7th of April. I've photocopied this. I printed it out and photocopied it. There's about 50 copies sitting down at the back, and if you want one of the copies, just please feel free to take it. An excellent article, uh, which, uh, in which Paul Vallely, um, a Catholic and editor of The Independent, uh, points out quite a number of things. He begins his article by saying it will shake Christianity to its foundations, or so the pre-publicity suggested. A 3rd or 4th century document called the Gospel of Judas was launched upon an unsuspecting world yesterday by no less a biblical authority than the National Geographic magazine in Washington. Its contents were explosive, according to the president of the Swiss Foundation, which now owns the ancient papyrus manuscript. But it's a very interesting article. It's not written from a specifically Christian point of view, but it does give a very balanced and independent, I would dare to suggest, approach to the publication of the Gospel of Judas. In one sense, you could see all this is quite depressing. That people pick up on manuscripts, the knowledge of which has been around for years, and suddenly trumpet them for the sake of marketing and money as the greatest thing that's going to rock Christianity. In another sense, it's very exciting. Because it opens up all kinds of conversations and discussions. Because it brings all of us as well into the world of the first and second century. And dealing and thinking about the issues of what was going on there. And it's all very exciting, not least because Jesus is back on the agenda. Big time. Easter is now considered as a key publishing opportunity. And we need as Christians to learn to live with the new reality. And to seize the opportunities. But assuming that we're sticking with the Gospel's approach to Judas this morning rather than preaching from the Gospel of Judas, and I haven't actually had a chance to read it yet, there are still many questions which have to be asked about Judas and how we understand him. William Barclay's little commentary outlines the three most common explanations about what motivated Judas to betray Jesus and what was really going on. 
And basically his three explanations, or he, the three explanations that are most common are simply this, that Judas was greedy and wanted the money. And there are references through the Gospels in Matthew and in John's Gospel to, to Judas being the one who looked after the money uh, for the whole group and as someone who on reflection clearly was greedy. And therefore one view is simply he did it for the money. It's that simple. Others say that Judas was angry. He was angry for any one of a number of reasons. The most common one being that he was angry because Jesus uh, was not doing what he had expected Jesus to do. He was angry and he himself felt betrayed that all this talk about kingdom and the establishment of kingdom and God's kingdom was coming to nothing. And another view is quite simply that Judas was trying to help, which is the kind of view that comes out in the Gnostic gospel, the gospel of Judas. Although there it's for slightly different reasons. But he was trying to help things along. He was hoping that if he forced Jesus' hand, that Jesus would actually do what he believed Jesus could do. And that is usher in the kingdom of God and power and glory, reestablish Israel as a great force in the world, and deal with the Romans and have them kicked out of Israel. So these three views are commonly held as to what motivated Judas. But what are we to make of it and how are we to approach this? Well, let's trace the story in Matthew and turn to Matthew chapter 26 and read a few of these passages of scripture and just notice what they're saying. Matthew chapter 26, it's on page 995 of the copies of the Bible that are in the pew. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus and in some sly way, in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as she was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas, as far as we know, was not a Galilean, unlike the rest of the disciples. It seems to me that it's entirely possible that Judas was never really comfortable with many of the things that Jesus did and said. He's often referred to as a zealot, someone who was uh, committed politically to the establishment of Israel as a great force again and the uh, ejection of the Romans from Israel. Whether that's true or not, we don't actually know. It's, 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 it's something that people assume from his family name. But it may have been equally that Judas was a zealot in religious terms, someone who was actually really very committed and very conservative in his Judaism at that time. Because I think one of the interesting things in this passage that we've just read comes in verse 14. And how we un understand what Matthew is saying to us when he uses the simple phrase, then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot. 
If you were here some weeks ago, you may remember when we preached and looked at this particular passage, the whole contrast between the woman and her public declaration of affection for Jesus and Judas, who leaves the room, who leaves the celebration, the meal that's going on, and makes his way out from Bethany, down through the valley, and up into the city of Jerusalem. Matthew has this linking word then in a way in which none of the other other Gospels actually have. And he seems to be tying this together. He seems to be tying together what has just happened with this woman, which has outraged the disciples, but we know from the other Gospels has particularly outraged Judas. And he seems to be linking that with Judas' move into Jerusalem to meet with the chief priests to hand Jesus over. And I think the account of understanding what motivates Judas begins in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 26 in Matthew's gospel. Then, given all that had happened in that week in Jerusalem, then, given all that he had found hard to accept and maybe argued with and discussed with, we knew the disciples weren't a simple homogeneous group. We knew they didn't agree with everything. We knew they fell out. We knew they argued about who was going to be the greatest. We knew they even did that at the Last Supper. We knew that they were not a simple group of people who, who shared everything in common. There were many things they didn't understand, many things they debated. You'll find all of that in the Gospels. Judas was part of that group, not simply a blind follower who accepted everything, but someone who didn't understand it times and quite clearly at some point someone who didn't like what he saw then given this unacceptable incident with the woman and we looked at that some weeks ago and all that was implied in her tenderness and her compassion all that was implied in the physical touch that was involved um, around Jesus in, in the light of all of that and its inappropriateness never mind the waste of money that was involved then Judas knew that it was time to act he walked away And was going to bring to an end Jesus' full frontal attack and all that was dear within contemporary and traditional Judaism as he understood it. It happens. It happens in all walks of life. People walk together for a while, but there's a discomfort. There's something not quite right. There's something not quite settled. And then, strangely, maybe at times when you're least expecting it, there's an eruption. There's a break in a relationship. There's a parting of the ways. There's something that you just weren't anticipating. And everything that you'd taken for granted about conversations and everything that you'd taken for granted about a relationship and everything you'd taken for granted about agreement and principles and all the rest of it just suddenly disappears up in the air. It happens in church life. It happens in family life. It happens in close relationships. It happens in work. It's probably happened to you. And it happens here. And it's not that hard to believe. And Judas goes to hand him over. Look at what he says in verse 15. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? They didn't need someone to identify Jesus for them. Everybody knew who he was. They didn't need someone to point out who this mysterious character who happened to turn up in the temple a few days earlier and cause mayhem was. They didn't need someone to go and point out who this person was that had been teaching in the temple precincts forever. What they needed was someone who would hand him over. Someone from the inside who had all the knowledge, had been with them, and who would have all the information that could get them a conviction. Judas was prepared to hand him over. The leading the posse up to Gethsemane, the identifying him with a kiss, is the outworking of what Judas was prepared to do, which was a great deal more than that. He was prepared to turn witness against Jesus. 
and hand him over to the authorities. Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 to 25. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Matthew, unlike some of the other gospel writers, doesn't actually tell us what happens after that brief encounter between Jesus and Judas in verse 25. But in this passage, Judas is challenged by Jesus to decide what he's going to do. It would appear that in spelling out what is going to happen, there is a real challenge put to Judas as to whether or not he is actually going to follow through on this. There's no great surprise to Jesus in what is about to happen. And there does seem to be an offer to Judas that is made here at this particular moment in the, in the context of that supper, that Passover meal, in the context of the sharing that is associated with it, the fellowship that it represents of belonging together and committed together. There is something there, a great deal there, that suggests that Jesus, his heart is still open to Judas. And Judas is challenged to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to sup with Jesus? Is he going to sup with the devil? But Judas has made his mind up. He has already been there. He has already made a conscious decision. He has already let them count into his hand the pieces of silver. He has them in his pocket, in his little bag. The deed is already done. And then in Matthew 26 verses 47 to 50. At Gethsemane. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him, was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, friend, do what you've come for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Judas comes, and as Judas comes, he leads a posse. It appears that Judas has found his place in the establishment of Jerusalem, its religious establishment, or so he thinks. Much is made of the terms that Mark, or Matthew uses for kiss, Apparently, when it talks about um, kissing him in verse 49, it's talking about that kind of affectionate embrace, which is where the trying to help theory comes from, where the Gospel of Judas and the Gnostic reading of what is going on here comes from. But it could as easily be simply a very patronizing thing. This man has made up his mind about Jesus. This man has made up his mind about all that he has seen, and he has chosen to reject it. He disagrees with it. He doesn't believe he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He doesn't believe he is the Christ. He doesn't believe he is bringing the kingdom of God. He believes that enough is enough. It is time to be rid of him and he is prepared to hand him over. And so he leads himself, 
the group of people who are going to do the arresting. He seems to be very much in charge here. He gives them their orders and their instructions. He's operating as part of the establishment at this point. And Jesus is arrested. And then when we come to the next reading, which is Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 to 10, we get another insight. When Judas, who had betrayed him, this is after Jesus is led away to Pilate. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, in other words, he saw this was the end. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Whatever went on in the hours in between, and we don't know, and it's not surprising we don't know, because although John and Peter were close to the action the whole time and in the house of the chief priest, and certainly in the courtyard of the chief priest, we don't see much of Judas. We would love to know what, it went, what went on in his mind between that arrest scene and this scene when he has worked his way into the temple precincts and walked and maybe run through the court of the women and through the court of the Gentiles and into the inner sanctuaries of the court and is shouting to the chief priests and calling to them and embarrassing them maybe in public and shouting that he has betrayed an innocent man when they don't want to know and they don't care and in his desperation and in his lostness he throws the money back at them and he runs out. And does what is an incredibly difficult thing to imagine in any set of circumstances. He hangs himself. The guilt and the desperation, the remorse that is portrayed here in the life of Judas is tragic. So it seems to me that of the three options we have, I don't really see Judas as trying to help. I don't see him as that naive. I don't see him as that stupid. And I don't see him doing it just for the money. I think Judas came to a point where he just didn't believe. He came to a point where he wanted to hold on to what he considered to be the values that mattered. To stick with the religion that he knew and get rid of Jesus who was upsetting so much. It happens. It happens in life. It happened with Judas. But what can we learn as we think about this for ourselves this morning? Because we're not looking at this simply because the Gospel of Judas was published this week. We're not looking at it simply because we're coming to the end of Matthew's Gospel. We're looking at it to ask the question, what do I take away from this? It seems to me that at the end, Judas couldn't cope with Jesus. Because he was having to cope with the grace of God in a way which was difficult. Because whether it was a leper whether it was a prostitute, whether it was tax collectors, Jesus was determined at every point to communicate the love of God and the grace of God. 
It didn't matter who this woman was that was anointing him at this table. It didn't matter how inappropriate such behavior was in that context. Jesus was clear as to what he had come to do. He hadn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world, as John puts it in John 3.17. For God had so loved the world that he gave his only son, a son who came willingly to give of himself. And that was difficult. And the concept of grace and the concept of the way God deals with us in grace is difficult. And it's very difficult if you're tied into self-righteousness. If you're tied into the capacity to do things for yourself. And you believe that at the end of the day you will be able to work it somehow or another. Then the concept of grace in this, this sense of God's giving unconditional love and forgiveness and acceptance is very difficult. It's very difficult if you're tied into a very strict religious way of thinking. Because then what does this say about your religion? What does it say about your church going? What does it say about turning up here this morning? About reading your Bible every day? About making sure that you try and keep the Ten Commandments? If it's all actually down to grace, then what was all that for? And what's all that about? And what credit do you get for doing it? And if we're very tied into a religious way of thinking and doing, grace is very difficult. I think Judas found Jesus very difficult to cope with. I think Judas becomes aware of Jesus' innocence. And what he sees in himself is devastating. And that's very hard to deal with. And one of the things that's particularly hard to believe about Jesus is that he is the Son of God, as well as truly human. Because one of the very difficult things that's hard to believe about that is that Jesus was actually sinless. And one of the difficult things about that is the idea that somebody actually walked on this earth, lived as a human being, lived in family life and amongst other people and did it right and did it well makes what I do look pretty poor and paltry at times. Because as I know my own heart and know my own behavior and my own attitudes, watching Jesus and being aware of his innocence creates problems for me coming to terms with myself. Which is why it's not just a matter of logic in the Bible. It's why the Bible truthfully speaks about the fact that what we are by nature are rebellious people, sinners. There is a flaw, a problem with us. And we see that most clearly as we see Jesus clearly. And Judas becomes aware of the innocence of Christ. Why? I don't know. Whether it was because he was there and couldn't speak. Whether it was because he saw the way in which the truth was being told. Maybe he saw the bankruptcy of the organized religion that he had decided to align himself with. Whatever it was, he, he, he understands that he has betrayed innocent blood. And he is filled with remorse. Not because his plan backfired. But because he has done what is evil. And Judas throws the money into the temple precincts. Judas has no way of dealing with his sense of guilt. And interestingly, the people around him have no way of helping him and no interest in helping him. Because their situation, their religious situation at that time is about maintaining what they've got. It's about keeping what they've got in the face of the threat that Jesus presents to it. And if religion is all we've got, we have no way of dealing with our guilt. And that becomes a major crisis for us as human beings. If there is no way to deal with our guilt, what do we do with it? We bury it. 
We pretend it's not there. We change our value system. We move away from anything to do with biblical values because the only way to live with who we are and what we are and the guilt of what we do at times is to change our values to make it okay, which is what our society is all about. Or sometimes we get darker and darker and darker in our mood and in our context and in our situation as we see ourselves blacker and blacker to the point where some people find themselves in Judas' situation where life is no longer livable. What do we do with our guilt? For Judas, Jesus was condemned. He could see no future. The chief priests had no way of helping him and no desire to help him. That was his problem. They had got their solution. What do you do with your guilt? How do you deal with it? As we'll see this evening, Judas wasn't the only person in trouble at this particular time. Peter was in trouble. Peter was struggling with darkness and depression. Peter was broken. He was in tears. He had denied the Lord three times. But when you come to John chapter 21, you find Peter back at his fishing. You find him still a disillusioned man, and you find him in a conversation with Jesus. And how is Peter's guilt dealt with? Jesus never asks him to make a full confession of all the reasons why he denied him. Jesus never asks him to justify himself. Jesus never gets him to stand up in public in front of the disciples and confess to what he did. Jesus loves him. Because all that was necessary for Peter's guilt to be dealt with was done at the cross just a few days earlier. And the message of resurrection and the message of Jesus Christ in his encounter with Peter was that guilt is atoned for. Forgiveness is a reality. Love is the issue. And it is love with which Peter is met. Judas could see no way in which his guilt would ever be dealt with. And he went into the darkness of despair. Peter, I suspect, was somewhat similar, but not driven to the same lengths of despair. But guilt can be dealt with. Sin can be dealt with. Our alienation and our wrongness against God can be dealt with because it was dealt with. It was dealt with at the cross when Jesus went there and took our place. And it is dealt with not because you come to the front here and confess every sin that you can ever remember. Not because you beat yourself around and put yourself down. It's dealt with because in the love of God, God's desire is for you to become the person he intended you to be. Reconciled with him. And free to live in the light and glory of the love of Christ. Judas is the great tragic figure of this situation. I always find myself asking questions about the Bible and about the way things work out or what we don't know. And I often wonder what would have happened to Judas if he had hung on for another two days. If he had been with the rest of the disciples on the beach. Do you know what I think? I think Jesus would have treated him exactly the same way he treated Peter. If Judas was open to it. This morning in a week which is filled with news of betrayal and news of Judas. 
Let me ask you where you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ, in relationship to God, and the knowledge of his forgiving grace for you. If there's anything about what we've been talking about this morning you want to pick up with me afterwards, please feel free to do so. I'll be around and happy to talk with you about it. We have this song to bring our time to a close and my apologies that I've gone on a bit long this morning. So some of you will need to leave fairly quickly as we start to sing this and retrieve your children from creche. Uh, But feel free to bring them back in and if the children are finished in junior church, bring them back in here as well as we sing together this song, Purify My Heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Let's stand together. Lord, in different ways we see ourselves in the story that unfolds before us in Matthew's Gospel. We find ourselves struggling. We find ourselves disbelieving. We find ourselves overwhelmed. We come seeking the help and the grace of your Holy Spirit and pray that as we listen again, particularly over this next week, to the unfolding story of what happens in the trial and in the crucifixion, what happens in the resurrection, that as we listen to all of this, your Spirit might grant to our hearts understanding. Father, as we separate from one another, We do so with a whole new set of challenges for the week that lies ahead. With many opportunities to do good and many opportunities to do evil. Grant us the grace to choose to do that which is right in every set of circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.